Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 14, with John Trotter. Welcome to episode 14 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. Today, I'm happy to welcome John Trotter to the show. John is the founder and creative director of San Francisco branding agency, 4040. At 4040 Agency, John has worked with brands and teams in the NFL, Major League Soccer, Major League Baseball, as well as consumer brands such as Keen Footwear and more. Before founding 4040, John was a senior designer at Nike and a design director at the global branding agency, Landor. Welcome to the show, John. I appreciate you taking the time to come aboard. Thanks, Adam. Uh, appreciate, uh, happy to be on, and uh, I like what you're doing here. You're doing some good stuff with this podcast, so I'm, and I'm happy to be number 14. Awesome. I appreciate that. So I gave a, a brief introduction in the intro. However, I'd love to give our listeners a little bit more in-depth background. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little more about your story? Yeah, happy to do it. Um, I'm a uh, Southern California guy. I grew up in Los Angeles and San Diego. And growing up in Los Angeles, um, always influenced by architecture. And when I was a kid, I always grew up and uh, when I grew up, I wanted to be an architect and, and always kind of pursued that. Uh, through through school and high school, had that as a goal. The other side, I think, like a lot of a lot of guys, a lot of a lot of people growing up. The other side of my big interest was sports, and and played a lot of basketball growing up. And got to the point when um, I was deciding on where to go to college, and had architecture schools on one hand, and a good small liberal arts school on the on the other on the other hand, and and looked at the architecture schools and and saw that that was a pretty rigorous program when you're 18 years old and, and all-encompassing. And I was smart enough at the time, Adam, that I knew that I probably couldn't devote that amount of time to that focus of uh, study when I was 18 years old. And I was looking a little bit more for a, a more holistic college experience. And you can interpret that holistic college experience any way you, you want to. <laughs> <laughs> But um, and, and that did include playing playing the sport. So I got an opportunity to play basketball for a couple of years at, at Occidental College in Los Angeles, small D three school, and and that was important to me, and, and had a lot of fun doing that, and was able to do that. So I I went there and, and ended up being a political science major with an art minor, and and got out and, and worked in business for a few years in Los Angeles, but then that full of design and architecture kept coming back to me and coming back and, and knew that I wanted to uh, pursue that in some way. And, and growing up in my family, my, uh, we were a family that, that really lived to work as opposed to work to live. And my dad had always said, you need to pursue something that you can do for 40 or 50 years. And he was a good example, certainly a good example of that. And so, and that for me was architecture or design of some sort. And so I had a mentor back in those days who was just a few years older than me that went to architecture school and got out of architecture school and went right to the art center college of design in pasadena 
and I met with him, and he's and I was thinking about being a going to graduate school in architecture, and and he said, go to art center and get a design degree. Your opportunities will be a lot greater if you do that as opposed to be an architect and at that time. And architecture was a difficult profession at that time, and so I took his advice, went to art center got a environmental design degree with an emphasis in architecture and it was a little bit more broad-based program where I learned graphic design and, and certainly environmental design and some architecture. And when I got out, that mentor, that same mentor that recommended me, he had gotten a job at Nike and was, was a pretty was pretty senior guy at, up at Nike. And so Art Center in those days was a, a real pipeline to, to Nike. And that was really my goal going in was to see if I could get up up there and, and work at Nike, and it, because it did combine two things that I love, the sports side of it and, and the design side. And so I was fortunate enough, super fortunate, right out of Art Center, my first job was as a junior designer, as a designer there at Nike in, in, up in Beaverton, Oregon. And those days we worked, it was the environmental design department, and I worked on mostly retail stuff, a lot of, a lot of Nike town stuff, a lot of trade show work, and really crafting three-dimensional experiences and how, how the Nike brand expressed itself in environments and in three-dimensional experiences. And, and, you know, it was it was great years, terrific projects, really, really fun, big stuff, especially for a young designer. And I, I was a young designer and this, uh, it, was, it was my first job. And so did that for, gosh, six, almost seven years up there. And that time culminated my time at Nike culminated. I was the creative director for Nike's presence in the Atlanta Olympics in 96 and designed, led that whole presence down there. And that was a terrific experience and a really award-winning experience down there. And it was really the last time that Nike had, they were never a sponsor. In those days, they were never a sponsor of the Olympics. And it was the last time they really did a guerrilla presence down there. They really took over the, the whole... Uh, Atlanta region with not only advertising but uh, this this big three-dimensional experience that we helped create and for different reasons we decided to to leave Portland uh, my wife was from New York and I'm from Los Angeles and and Portland ended up being uh, too small for us we wanted big, <laughs> we wanted a bigger city and it, it's a it was a little bit different back then not right now now it's a lot more vibrant than it was then, and it was just a small city in the rain, and the rain kind of got to us a little bit too. And again, I'm being from Los Angeles. Yeah, I can only imagine being from Southern California, having to live in the rainy city of Portland. Well, as I know, it's, it, it, it rained about uh, 11 days a year in Los Angeles, and it didn't rain 11 days a year in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, I, it's a great place, and that, like I said, it's a real vibrant city, so it's a real design hub now. But we wanted to move back to California, and there are some opportunities in San Francisco. And San Francisco being a big design hub, we I pursued some different design opportunities here and ended up landing at Landor uh, Associates. And that was a great experience as well. I really learned the brand side of the equation when I was at Landor. Um, it's funny, at, at Nike, a lot of the stuff that Landor did as a formula or, or you know, kind of through different processes, uh, Nike just is, did that intrinsically. So there was a real intrinsic experience with with working at, at Nike. They got they certainly got the brand thing in a big way, but there wasn't a process, a step by step process that we had to follow to get there. We, we just did, and then uh, Landor learned the the brand side and did a little bit more graphic design 
worked there, but um, also was the creative director of the environmental design department there. That was a great experience as well, and 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 really learn how to work with some bigger brands. Um, and then that experience ended in a terrific project that we did for the Lincoln Motor Car Company. They sponsored the U.S. Open, the U.S. Tennis Open, and we created this. 50,000 square foot um, experience on site there, really answering the question of what would tennis look like if Lincoln designed it? And um, ended up uh, just this, this, this wonderful experience, got a ton of press. It was really a terrific experience. And, and the Lincoln, the president of Lincoln at the time, so he went through and said, this is the best the Lincoln brand has ever looked. So it was a real, it was a real high point. I flew back here to San Francisco on September 10th, and then the next day was September 11th, and um, so the you know everything the world changed after that, and the economy started to to go down. And so at that point, about six months later, we took that model, uh, another guy and I, and we started this business. We started 4040, and we really started this as to really examine or take advantage of the intersection of sponsors, the fan, and the sport. And at that time, there weren't a whole lot of brands that were doing it well. There was a lot of brands that were uh, throwing a lot of money into that equation and a lot of them that weren't doing it well. And so we thought that there was a business model there and started 4040 from that. So we started it, gosh, it's been almost 13 years now. Wow, awesome. Congratulations on that. Um, I want to go back uh, real quick to so to, at Nike, I mean, you had this passion for architecture, and now you're getting to work on these 3D experiences. I mean, there had to be somewhat of a satisfaction there, right, with with being able to work on some of that stuff? Oh, tremendous. Yeah, it was, you know, those days, and they, they still do it. They really, really are on the leading edge of what those experiences um, look like and, and how they activate all the all the senses. Um, and, and they were on the cutting edge then, the leading edge then, and they still are now. Um, so it was it was it was a tremendous experience, and and it was the initial rollout of all the Nike towns. The first one was in Portland, the second one was in Chicago, and and I was there during those days when they were we were just rolling these giant brand experience stores that were really really shaking up the whole retail world. They've evolved quite a bit since then, but um, they they were fun in those days, and and there was um, there were some really really great experiences, and then I did. A lot of second half of my time there, I did a lot of trade show stuff too, and I love doing that. Uh, trade shows are great opportunities to experiment on um, some different brand experiences. They're temporary by nature; it's a trade show, so you're able to you able to to experiment with some things that you uh, you really can't do as well in the retail space because there's the permanence of it. So, um, so the the trade shows the trade show experience was quite well. In those days, Nike was spending a lot of money and spending a lot of resources um, going to the different trade shows all over the world. I'm not, I'm not so certain they do that now. I've been gone for a while, but, um, but, but those, were, those were big, those were really, really big, fun projects that the consumer didn't see, but um, you know, people within the industry certainly saw that. Right. So uh, the 96 Atlanta, Atlanta Olympics, m- my wife's actually from Atlanta and like we, you know, I'm super familiar with that. Actually, the, um, it's, it's really one of the first times that I remember recognizing i guess outside of like not not knowing what any of this stuff was because i was i was i guess maybe in middle school or maybe early high school uh recognizing like a visual style to something 
that mm-hmm. that was outside of like the identity world, like other than like, oh, that's a clearly a logo or whatever. Right. Did did uh were you familiar with the guy named Malcolm Greer by any chance? He's uh, I'm not. I don't know. Okay, so he there's there's actually <laughs> I'm gonna actually tie in two references to where I went to school, which is a very small university outside of Lexington, Kentucky. Eastern, it's called Eastern Kentucky University, but um, Malcolm Greer is a designer that came from there that taught at RISD, and uh, okay. he actually is the one that did all of the icons for those Olympics the 96 Atlanta Olympics. So all the, okay. uh, yeah, all the little icons that were on, you know, for the sports, the different sports right, and stuff. Right. I remember. Um, it. Yeah. Yeah. So did, did, when you were at Landor, did they have the Cincinnati office? Yeah, they did. Yeah. They were doing all the packaging work out of there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So yeah. I, I live about an hour and a half from Cincinnati. So that's, that's another kind of one of the big, big ones around here that everybody sort of thinks about, but yeah, it makes sense. Uh, packaging cause uh, PNG is, yeah. is up there. Like the headquarters, I think Landor is now headquartered, not in San Francisco anymore, but in, in Cincinnati. Yeah, actually, uh, 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 tying back in another <laughs> of one of my alma mater um, influences is uh, the global president of consumer brands is uh, Mary Zala, and she went to, oh, right. went to, yeah. went to school where, where I went to school. So yeah. pr- pretty cool. But um, So when did, you, when did you decide, like from a branding side, like when did you really sort of grasp like what that is? You know, because we think about branding, a lot of people, uh, not necessarily people that listen to the show or that we even talk to on the show, but many people sort of hear the word branding and they automatically default to logos. Right. So when did you kind of get that higher level of, of education and knowledge about, you know, from the experience side and, and that type of thing? That's interesting. I, I mentioned that at Nike, we just, you know, we, there was no formula to follow. We were just always charged with, you know, designing incredibly, innovative and creative experiences and you know we didn't you would design something and, and it didn't it, you just knew if it if it represented the Nike brand and if you after, after you worked there long enough you um, you understand what that looks like so there wasn't a there wasn't a formula with it and it wasn't until when I got to Landor um, there was more processes in place and and just being involved not necessarily as a designer with the identity projects, but certainly being around and seeing those and seeing that process and seeing the, the really strong, smart, strategic thinking that would lead to solutions. Right. And, and that's, where I, that's where I really got, um, certainly got involved with that in a big, big way. And, it's, um, and then we're using, certainly using that um, methodology to, on everything that we do at 4040 is, is take that good brand thinking. And I think that's a, Adam, I think that's a big differentiator with, with 4040. And it was when we started in the sports space is taking a strategic approach to solving whatever brand problem or whatever, whatever communication problem there, uh, a, a team, a sport, a league or a sponsor has, um, historically, and I'm, and I'm drawing a broad brush stroke here, but historically, a lot of times, um, unfortunately sports looked at problems in a vacuum and not through a brand lens and so they were solving they were solving things communication needs on a one-off basis and so you might for a team you might get a you know a, a collateral piece that looks one way and then the, the experience inside the stadium is something different and then the advertising is a third different way and so we we recognize that and, and thought let's take a more holistic brand approach when we're when we're uh, attacking these projects 
So at, at Landor, I mean, you talked about you're working on that Lincoln and, and then the tennis. Uh, was it the U.S. Open? Yeah, U.S. campaign. Yeah. Um, and then you left Landor and went and started 4040. Is that really kind of your moment where where you were like, you know, this this higher level of thinking in sports, you know, maybe wasn't necessarily getting done at that time, and and you saw like that tie in. I guess what I'm asking is, what is your inspiration for really starting 4040, going a little bit deeper on that, and then also where did the name 4040 come from? Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that that was really it. We, we were out there in New York, and we sat there and, and saw how successful this thing was, and how we were able to create this experience that that meant something to the fans. And and it was at the same time when there was a lot of big naming rights deals that were going on. And in those days, the naming rights deals were slap your logo up on the side of the building as big and as many times as you can. And the result of that was the result of that was a, a real disconnect between the, the sponsor and the fans and, and the sport. And it was having, in a lot of cases, it was having the opposite effect of what these brands, these sponsors who intended it, intended it to, to be. And so uh, these deals, those naming rights deals in those days and still are, are there's huge, huge amounts of money that are, that are paid to those things. And they were not spending a whole lot of money in activating it or telling the story of why, you know, why is Lincoln at the U.S. Open other than the obvious demographic tie-in. But, uh, you know, why is, why in those days was, why is Minute Maid doing the Houston Astros Stadium? So there was a business model there of answering that question in the form of a brand experiences and telling that story. And so that, that's what, how we started the business in those days. And then 4040, my partner at the time and I, we were, I'll tell you the truth, we, we, we changed the story based on the audience. And so in the sports audience, we'll say that sports comes up um, or the, the 40 comes up in sports a lot with the 40 yard dash and uh, the 40 40 club in baseball. Um, and, or else we'll, we also sometimes will say that we see things twice as clearly because 2020 uh, in the eye chart. Yeah, that's you, nice. Well, it isn't nice because if you wear glasses, that I think you do, the, uh, you would be 10 10. Then. Oh, <laughs> shows how much I know about the eye injury. <laughs> exactly. 40-40 is twice as bad. And so the, but the real story is that's how old we were when we started the business. Okay, cool. So, But now you know how old I am. When taking on branding responsibilities for a sports brand, you know, we, we discussed a little bit earlier, a lot of people, especially fans or those not familiar with the higher level strategic side of the industry, they tend to think about brand identity. Can you do a little bit of a more deeper dive on the strategy side of the business um, and branding work for, say, a sports team? Uh, you, you know, how many, how many of these sports teams are you actually doing brand identity work for versus you're actually helping to tell the story of that particular year or, or that particular stadium or a particular campaign. Right. Right. It's more the, the latter than, than the former um, in terms of creating that actual brand identity. Our uh, largest client right now, um, and we've had them for the last five years, the Washington Nationals baseball team. Um, and we've been with them as their agency of record for the last five years. And our charge with them was not necessarily to create the Curly W logo. We've, we have evolved it a little bit and staged it in different ways, um, but really to create a brand with meaning to the, for the fans. And so 
What we do in our process, in our strategic process, is we, Adam, we start this. We start it with asking big, not rhetorical questions, but asking big questions and then help them solve that. And the first question that we ask to any of our clients, whether it's a consumer products brand or a, um, or a sports brand or a sponsor, is what's your vision? You know, what is your vision? And really what the question we ask them is, how do you want to change the world? And when you ask the people around the table, the, the senior leadership of how they want to change the world, a lot of times they'll give them a mission statement or something. But we ask that from a, try to help um, solve that from a brand perspective. And, a, and a, the best, one of the best examples that we did, and I know you mentioned this in the beginning, but we work for Keen Footwear. They're a uh, consumer product company out of Portland. Yeah, I think some people know that they're, they're famous for their uh, sandal, their outdoor sandal. Mm-hmm. But we asked them that question of how you want to change the world. And we help them answer that. We answer that with the question of, of rede- redefining the outdoors um, as any place without a ceiling. And in those days when we started with them, the outdoor business um, was really identified by top of the mountain type of communications and top of the mountain kind of experiences. The, the outdoor brands would show guys hanging off of ice cliffs from their left pinky fingernail. And it was really something that the average guy that wants to, or average uh, woman that wants to, to buy their product, it's really, really hard to reach that, that pinnacle, that top of the mountain stuff. And so there was this every man quality in the outdoor business that was lost. And so we helped them um, define what that vision was as, as to redefine the outdoors as any place without a ceiling. And, it, and, it, and, and not coincidentally, that line aligned really well with their um, product line too, because the Keen does a lot of uh, urban footwear and urban products too. And then the second thing we do is try to understand what the core values of the organization are. Um, and and it, oftentimes it takes on the owner's core values or the core values of the organization. But um, and and from those values, um, we're able to we're able to help the consumers or ask the question of how do how do you want the consumers to identify with your brand. And so you go back to the case study, a really interesting case study that I mentioned earlier but didn't finish it was with the Washington Nationals. And when we got involved, they were a, um, you know, a team that was uh, had the worst record in baseball and were just, uh, had just been in, 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 as a team for five years. They're relatively new to Washington, D.C. D.C. had been without a baseball team for, gosh, I think since the, I'm going to get this wrong, but I'm going to say since the 50s or 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it had been a long period of time since the Washington Senators were there. And so they were without a team for, for quite some time. And, and D.C. has a huge challenge um, because their fan base is a transient one. A, much, a huge percentage of that population um, leaves with every administration. Right. Um, and so, and they come there with every administration. I think more so than any major league baseball team. Yeah, actually, I, I, there's a. I, I feel like I see a lot of times you'll see a lot of politicians, and it'll be like, my favorite baseball team is the Yankees and the Nationals, right? Because yeah, exactly. it's like <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and so you'll get these fans that come there. That there's a higher percentage of fans that root for the opposing team because if you're from Chicago and the Cubs or the White Sox are coming into town, they'll play. You know, they'll 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 bring in those fans that stay there. And a, and a really um, interesting example of that happened when uh, the president, uh, when Obama, the President Obama 
threw out first pitch, and this was several years ago, threw out first pitch on opening day. He wore a Nationals jacket, and he was required to do that, but he uh, had a White Sox hat on his head. <laughs> and, and so so that was really indicative of that challenge that you have in D.C. with these split allegiances. Right. Um, and so our charge was really create a team or a brand with some meaning that the D.C. fans, whether they were there for seven years or you know, living there for seven or eight years or living there the whole life can really, um, can really rally around. And it was a challenge because they had just lost over 100 games. Um, they had the first pick of the draft the next year, and, and they picked, that's when they picked Steven Strasburg. You know, but he was a couple of years away from playing. And then the next year, they, again, were the worst team in baseball, and they had the other first pick, and that's when they picked up Harper. So they had the fortunate, uh, Bryce Harper, and they, that, they had the fortunate case be able to have two superstar number one picks uh, in back-to-back years. And so we looked at this team and we looked at the makeup of this team and and saw that they were not playing their their personality of their team and of the players was not of a like a team that was losing as many games as they were. There was a real, we call this real badass quality to these guys. And that's really, they're all young players, this real energy and they really approached the game with abandon and never gave up. And, and so we created, crafted this positioning, and it was one of those light bulb moments that you have as, as a designer that you know that's going to really, it, it can really take off if we do it right. And I had this, this light bulb idea that came from this, the real badass quality of these guys, and they had a real attitude. And so I came up, we came up with the word attitude, and then that became their, that became their rallying cry, really their brand. And launched that the next year. They launched that in 2012 when um, they won the National League East and made the playoffs. And it was was quite had a had quite the year. And it just is it, it's just taken off, and everybody's picking it up. And the beauty of that the beauty of that idea, and I'll say that idea. So what we try to do a lot of times is it's broad enough um, that the fans have adopted this, and then and the fans the fans have taken this and and created their own spin on this through social media in the different ways. So there's there's a Beardatude Twitter handle that's pretty uh, that's pretty popular. There's a Balditude one because uh, Matt Williams is bald, and so there's a lot of different iterations of the the attitude that's been taken off since then. And so we've created we've created that as their agencies as opposed to you know creating the curly W and, and, and what it looks like on the uniforms and stuff. And, and for baseball, mostly Major League Baseball does that. We have a hand, a little bit of a hand in it, but uh, Major League Baseball does most of that. Yeah. Well, that's that's uh, I'm I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at this campaign right now, and, and I'll put a link in the show notes for everybody. But I I, I have to imagine that um, just looking at don't tell me I can't make a difference at 19 and, and those types of uh, that type of copywriting that you did, you weren't able to draw in a lot of younger fans with, you know, kind of the whole swag. I mean, that's like a really swag type uh, message, I guess. We're, yeah. It's re- it really reflected these guys are really in your face, in your face message. And you've seen, you've seen, uh, I've seen probably most of your listeners have seen Bryce Harper play and, He's, he's real reflective of that. One thing, Adam, one thing that I really, one of my main rules in, in designing for sports when I'm working with a team or a league um, or a sponsor is really be authentic to the sport and to the players of who they are. 
and I learned that you learn that from Nike. If you look at all the Nike stuff, they are they're certainly true. That's one of their their key attributes. One of their key ideals is is making sure that the authenticity of the athlete in their case shows through. And I think fans resonate with that a lot more, as opposed to the one thing I hate to see is is making athletes uh, be actors and try to be funny. Um, in a commercial or in a different campaign, it's really, really hard to do. Yeah, um, you know they're not they're not actors, they're not athletes. Uh, they're not actors, they're athletes. And you get them talking about, you know, what's in their heart, what's in their head, and you get things like, "Don't tell me what to do when I'm 19." I can, you know, you, you get that kind of badassness from yeah. from these guys. You get who they are. And there's some really cool ways to communicate that, and I, I'm a big, big believer in that. Did so you talked about how you know at the time when you took this campaign on the Nationals had you know one of the worst records, and and I think people that are outside of the sports business would determine the success of of something like one of these branding campaigns to what happens on the field on the court etc. However, those things for uh, for us you know the, uh, yourself your company and and the people that are creating the branding and the messaging behind these things all the creatives. We don't have any control in that. So that being said, how do you determine if one of these campaigns was successful? Is it about how many tickets were sold? Is it about like what you're talking about, social media and, and fan engagement? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that. But on a, on a bigger level, looking at it from 10,000 foot down, it's really creating a brand with meaning. You can't tell me that the Boston Red Sox, who for 86 years were... were you know, never won a World Series, never got there, you know, got there and, and were failures. They had the second strongest brand in all of baseball because that brand had meaning, and that meaning was based on the idea of believe. Everyone in Boston, all of the fans believed that next year they were going to win it. That was going to be the year, and they held on to that. And the Red Sox, because they've been around forever, the Red Sox did a, um, an awesome job at creating this this idea and then you know, a brand's an idea of belief that they can do that. And the Cubs are the same way. I, I, you know, the Cubs are kind of the same way. There's a lot of a lot of Cubs lovers out there, and they haven't been there for over 100 years. So our job as branding people is to create meaning to teams. And I think we did it with, a, we've done it with the Nationals. There's a, there's a personality behind this team that people resonate with. And and, and you see it all over D.C. It's becoming the uh, most popular team in D.C. Um, and I think because it's the personality of the team, personality of the players, it's a real football town. And I'll, I'll, I'll stay away from discussion on the other football the football team in D.C. But uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a touchy subject right that's now. <laughs> a touchy, yeah, I don't, I'll stay away from that. But but the, the greater D.C. area has really adopted the Nationals as a team, and I, and largely because the personalities of the team, the players, um, their success, yes, but also because it's there's people resonate with it. So well, I think uh, I love what you said there, brand, you know, creating a brand with meaning. For me, that, and I think a lot of us that tend to do work in this industry, that that's one of the most beautiful things about this particular niche and and really any creative field, be it advertising or anything, is that. Just the type of engagement that you get from fans, people that are very, you know, I've said before, you know, you're not going to see people that have a Tropicana tattoo, uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, they'll have a national tattoo or something exactly. like that, you know? And yeah. so the fan, just the engagement of the people that care. And I mean, I would even argue that the consumer, you know, just normal consumer brands would, would 
absolutely kill to have that type of engagement <laughs> with their brands. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, that's true. And, and that's the beauty of working in sports where you've got adults that are in the stands crying when they win, crying when they lose, um, you know, and, and you don't get that. You don't get that if you're in your example, if Tropicana is not on the shelf at the supermarket. And so there's this, this great emotion built in around these teams and it's our job to capture that emotion and create some more additional meaning. And nowadays, it's our job to create something that the fans can build on. And I think with this idea of Natitude, we're able to do that as um, you know, fans can make that their own. There's, there's so many wonderful examples of fans creating their own Natitude expressions and pushing that out. Um, and so if you're able to do that, if you're able to create a brand that, that, that the fans can have some ownership in and push out, then then uh, you're ahead of the game. Why, why do you think that, you know, we're, I, we're looking at your cam, I'm looking at your campaign here and, and just hearing you talk about this campaign and how it's, it's a much higher level of thinking and there's, there's a lot of strategy behind it and that type of stuff. But it seems like in, and I asked Todd Radom this question back in, I believe, episode three, but it seems like in the, in the general design world, design and things that are creative in the world of sport just doesn't get a whole lot of cre- credit or credibility or, or or anything like that. Why do you think that is? Like, why are we not seeing a lot more sports things in like the calm arts of the world or, you know, how design and these types of things? I, that's a good question. And I, I'd argue that it's getting better and better there. It's getting there. We just, um, not to, you know, pat, pat ourselves on the back, but, Clio, the, the Clio just launched a Clio sports division. Mm-hmm. So, and we won this Natitude campaign, won a Clio this year in their inaugural the Clio sports thing. So there's some good examples of good areas of, of, of design being, rec- sports design being recognized. I think if you looked, uh, you know, if you looked on the average, the pure advertising side of the, of the equation, you know, you look at agencies, the big agencies like Wyden Kennedy or Goodby here in San Francisco and some of the work that they've done for sports. And certainly Wyden has done this tremendous work for Nike over the years and Goodby did some terrific work for the NBA. Um, those are all tr- award-winning campaigns and some of the some of the best out there that, that everyone is, you know, emulating. And looking to. I love the, the, the one I'm thinking of with uh, the Goodby one was that NBA one with the split screen, where they had both, uh, they had two players talking about saying the same thing. I forget the name of the, I forget the name of the campaign if you remember it, but they were, you know, Kobe and. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember that now. I yeah, ring a bell. It was uh, Kobe and uh, LeBron were talking at the same time, saying mm-hmm. the exact same thing. Um, it was very, very powerful. Anyway, but they. I'm, I'm challenging you. I'm challenging you on that on that one, Adam, because I do think there's great design, whether it's in sports or whether it's in consumer products or whether it's in technology, whatever whatever category it's in, will be recognized. Mm-hmm. Cool. I I mean I, I do tend to uh, agree that it is starting to move in in a a better direction in terms of recognition and and things like that. I have ten you know seen a lot more even stuff in in communication arts and stuff like that. Whereas like years ago. You know, you just didn't read that much about it. It seemed like right. Uh, one of the one thing that kind of pops to the top of my head are some of these things that are just happening in the digital world. Oregon football. I mean, obviously, Oregon is sort of spearhead, you know, spearheaded by Nike since Nike does a lot of stuff with them 
you know, it's kind of like their uh, exper- experimental school. Right. But they did a website a few years back called or it's OregonGridiron.com, and it, right. it was basically, I mean, it was just beautiful, and it was actually not even designed by. I think it was designed by uh, a Portland web design company. Well, I'll have to look up and see who that was, but that's the type of thing that I think is uh, kind of coming forward in, in sort of like this non-traditional uh, method of putting out work in the sports industry where it's just, you know, purely visual and here's like, here's like a brand identity and, and here's our new uniforms type thing. Right, right. Whereas like, you know, these things actually do have a, it actually had a, if you go and look at the reasoning behind why they did this thing, it was because they wanted to open up their recruiting base to obviously in the Southeast and places like that where the SEC and college football is, is getting a lot of really good recruits. They wanted to open up their recruiting base uh, out, outside of their market nationally. And a lot of these guys, they couldn't get them to come visit the school, you know, so they could actually show them the super awesome facilities and the innovation that they had going on in, in their uh, architecture and things like that. So it was like this whole site is basically built to show people that. Like now you don't even have to go look. Like just look at this and this makes you want to come to Oregon <laughs> to look at this. Well, it's, it's funny you say that. It's, it's a real testament for the power of design. And I read, it's going to bring this up, and I, re- I read this recently as um, it's on the same lines as the Oregon's rise to prominence can be traced to the, the uniform design. And when they changed over to those uniforms where they have all those different permutations of, of the uniforms and you've, I don't know, there's, there's thousands of them that they can wear, that opened the door for the recruits to come to Eugene, Oregon. I mean, who's going to Eugene, Oregon if you've been there? It's a, it's a small, rainy place. Beautiful facilities there. Nike, University of Oregon and Nike has done a great job at, at making that a place, uh, a, a real great higher education institution. But it's hard, to your point, to get pe- kids from the southeast or um, they've got a huge recruiting cra- uh, class from Los Angeles, the greater Los Angeles area. They All, all those kids want to go drive right past SC, drive by UCLA, and go all the way up to Oregon. And it's because the uniforms, you know, a lot of them say, because I want to wear those uniforms. And so talk about the power of design to, to create a powerhouse program like like uh, like Oregon and something else. So, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Well, I think they even created a whole new world of fandom, I guess, in, in the yeah. world of sports. I mean, we see all these uniform blogs and critique things. But the thing that I find really interesting about it is that you you can't, you know, just fit a lot of schools I see that are making, and I do a lot of work in the college sports industry, so that's sort of where my I mm-hmm. pay attention a lot there. But you see a lot of schools that are trying to copy what Oregon did, but the whole thing is that you can't take a school and fit what Oregon did into a school with a lot of tradition or let's say, uh, you know, oh, I don't know, like a Michigan or something. Or Penn State. Yeah, you know, I mean, because the thing is they already have this tradition, and at the time, you know, from what I understand is Oregon didn't have a whole lot of tradition, so the thing is that they couldn't build that into their recruiting. It had to be something else. And, and now we see people are looking at the success of what's happening there, happened there, and they're trying to sort of retrofit that into their right. school, and it just doesn't work. I mean, you see like a random OVC school or something come out with like matte black helmets or some crazy thing. It's like, you know... That it just doesn't fit you guys. I mean, I'm familiar with your your brand and and the feeling and and of that you get when you go to your games, and it's just right. not it's not well, there. <laughs> I think Adam was there'll be some subtle changes to get that because I think they're going to have to do that to compete, not only compete for recruits but compete for merchandise sales too. 
So it'll be it'll be interesting to see. I think that whole and I don't know the right terminology for it. I should come up with that. But the whole multi-uniform model where you can where you can change out the uniforms. I think what what Nike's done with Oregon. I think it is the beginning of a sea change in in uniforms across sports. I think you're starting to see it in football a little bit with the Seattle Seahawks mm-hmm. uh, and some of the other teams are, are pushing a little bit further. And Nike just got the, the uniform contract for the NFL, so they're they're leading that charge. But it's going to come to baseball. It's going to come to everything. So uh, it's it's a really cool change that was rooted in in really really smart and good design. Speaking of uniforms, and since we're kind of on this topic, and and also your work with sponsors and kind of integrating consumer brand into sport, you know, if we look at the Premier League and and how these uh, you know, brands are on the on the jerseys. They kind of take yeah. the president over over the actual uniform in the in the you know the English Premier League. What is yeah. your what are what are your thoughts on some of that stuff coming to American sports, like so the NBA instead of having the Lakers really huge on the front, you've got some you know national brand. Yeah, that's a good question, uh, Adam. The the traditionalist in me wants to keep it the, the team brand there. I think the W did the WNBA. Had sponsors on theirs. I think certainly they MLS, may have. I think WNBA does. And certainly Major League Soccer does as theirs right. uh, to follow the soccer model. I I don't know. I I don't think that's coming anytime soon. I think the bigger change is what we were just talking about is is the different permutations of the jerseys and the uniforms is coming first. We'll we'll see. We'll see what the if the NFL does it, and I know they're trying different models to try to get some more sponsor, monetize some more stuff, then others will, will hold suit. We just finished interesting. We're talking about this, and you didn't. It's not on my site yet because we just finished it, but uh, we just did a big project for NASCAR. It's the first time we've done an auto, uh, auto racing, which is a terrific project and a great organization. The, the NASCAR Sprint Cup Series changed their format this year, and they're in the middle of it, uh, but they have a playoff. Uh, at the end of the season for the last 10 races. And so we branded that that playoff and named it and, and created some an identity system for that for that playoff. So I got to work in the NASCAR a little bit and they're the they're certainly the kings of uh, monetizing every everything <laughs> yeah. the cars and the driver uniforms. Well, so. and, they, and they have a that's something if we think about, you know, a lot of people that in this world that do a lot of work in the world of sport, they tend to default to the big revenue sports like uh, football and basketball and things like that. But that's a, that's a, a sport that has a huge audience. It's an amazing, incredible audience. Yeah. And I was not really exposed to it. It was one of those. It's one of the brands that we were that we were been pursuing for a long, long time. So it was, I was happy to get that. I wanted to, to, to understand them a little bit more and be part of that. But uh, yeah, they they have a huge, huge audience uh, and it's all in the middle of the country. Yeah. Yeah. So is there, you guys do a lot of work also for brands that necessarily aren't related to sports. Is there, do you view sports brands when you're working on, you know, say a campaign for the nationals versus, you know, something for like visa or something like that. Do you view those in the same light or are there different approaches to, you know, it's the same, it's the same process, you know, the the same process. And, and, you know, we've, we've worked for the gap, uh, some big projects for the gap. We're in San Francisco. I think every design firm has to work for the gap. If you, if you're here and and some different other different local, either consumer brands or non-sports brands, 
No, but the process is the same, Adam. I mean, we still ask those same big questions. How do you want to change the world? Uh, what are your core values? And, and try to help them solve that from a brand perspective. And then we'll articulate that through whatever the message is or through their brand positioning. And, and then apply the creative to that. So, but as, as I've evolved, as, this, as, as 4040 has evolved, we are, and I'm in the middle stages of it, as we are positioning ourselves really as a sports branding agency. And I think guys like you and people recognizing this is, um, you know, you look at our site and we're so sports focused and I'm, we're just going to go, we're going to go all in with the sports agency um, approach to that. Mm-hmm. So, and I think it's a smart thing, thing to do now. And that's how uh, companies like NASCAR found us. Right. I've been a big advocate of vertical markets and and especially for me. So I'm, you know, I'm a I'm a designer here in, you know, the middle of Kentucky, right? So how can I work with companies in Denver and and places like that? You know, it's because I'm not a generalist, you know. I mean, I try to push for uh, there's a domain knowledge here that I think that we have and and then people that listen to the show are trying to get or do have that you know, helps us because otherwise, you know, why would NASCAR, who's in Charlotte, not just grab a Charlotte advertising agency? You know, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we have. If you look at our client list, I mean, we're a, we're a small agency here in San Francisco. All of our clients are our clients are countrywide. We are we do a lot of work in D.C. for whatever reason, um, a lot in New York and all over the country. Where agencies, my companion agencies here in San Francisco that are my size that, that are a little bit more generalist or a little bit more traditional advertising type agencies. Um, they're real regional agencies and they do a lot of work here in, in the Bay Area and they are smaller mid-sized companies and we're the ability to be able to focus or have a vertical as you mentioned you're able to have a lot bigger work on a lot bigger and sexier brands because we can work alongside the big agencies that they have because we're and because we're a specialist we handle the sports side of that or if they you know if if a sponsor you know like a FedEx for instance has a huge sports marketing arm they don't work with their traditional agency for that they'll work with sports marketing agencies or brand agencies like ours to, right. to do that so. yeah that's 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 awesome so san francisco is where you guys are at and i think a lot of us probably know that that is a major major well the startup hub of the world i guess um with with companies you know like the facebook's of the world and and things like that in the area do you guys you know you guys are in services uh the services industry but have have you um have you ever thought uh forty forty and especially like i think there's a lot of opportunity in a sports vertical you know, have you ever thought about any kind of product work coming out with some kind of software for something or, or, or anything like that? Well, Adam, in order to vote in San Francisco, you have to show your business plan, your, your startup business plan. So in order to vote. <laughs> yeah. so. And everybody's got a startup t-shirt on, right? Everybody's got a startup t-shirt, exactly. Yeah. No, uh, yeah. I mean, as an, more as an entrepreneur, I think it's, I've got an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and I, and I think I would if I wasn't in San Francisco also. Um, but uh, yeah, I've got, I have a, a few different ideas uh, out there and, and, and hoping someday that I would pursue some of these. Um, and we have worked for a few technology companies. We're, we're somewhat unique being in San Francisco that we don't have a huge technology client list. And that's good. That's a good thing, I think. But we, we have done a number of them either through referrals or some friends that have started some stuff and we will 
we'll, we'll help them, you know, kind of launch their brand with them or, or do the identity work for them or get their website started, however, whatever that looks like. And so I've been exposed enough to that process of a, of a brand starting up to, to know, you know, to know how to do it, to see the excitement of it, to see the stress of it. Um, and I have been approached a lot of times for sports-related startups, too, and, and have worked on a few of those. Um, and there's some really interesting and good ideas out there for kind of sports-related startups. The, the one area that I find is very interesting um, that, that the U.S. market is somewhat behind is, is the whole ticketing um, side of the equation. We have done, for the Nationals again, we worked with a group out of London that did uh, virtual ticketing. The, the, the season ticket holders have their uh, season ticket on a card, and they're able to just swipe through swipe the card as they go through the turnstile. Um, and it's, they have a unique website that they're able to trade their tickets on. And it's really, really interesting cutting edge technology that you have seen in you know different different areas in the US, but not in the sports space. And I think that's a, that's a big and interesting area that, that has lots of opportunity going forward. I totally agree, opportunity-wise. I mean, there's, uh, it, it seems like that a lot of startups, just to kind of stereo, stereotype, I guess, you know, uh, there's they're thinking more about like trying to think, what's the next big Facebook? Like, how can I get like this big audience with just this general audience? And and like we talked about earlier, that whole niche thing. I went to a couple years ago. I went to a, a a conference that was geared towards people in the sports industry, and some of the things that were there exhibiting, I was abs- I was blown away by how terrible. Yeah, that that it was, yeah. you know, like just just from a, uh, the, the technology was terrible. I yeah. mean, there was no focus on interface. I mean, there's a there's a uh, a statistics software that just about every single major university uses that looks and operates like it's on like my, you know DOS, <laughs> right. which is absolutely insane. Because you know I've I've talked straight to sports information directors and things, and they're like, you know, we're getting these kids coming in that are wanting you know undergrad assistants and things like that. They're very used used to these highly engaged, yeah. very intuitive interfaces, and they're coming in. And they've never seen DOS like this. Is they're having to learn how to do key, keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's keyboard, you know, short shortcuts or whatever. So I think there's a big opportunity there. Huge opportunity there, and, and I think sports, for whatever reason, Adam, sports is technology wise, they're probably eight or ten years behind every everything else. And I know I work a lot in baseball and and. Baseball's getting there, but individual teams sometimes that they hold on to those traditions and don't want to change those. And you know, I go back to the ticketing; they don't want to get rid of the paper tickets because um, you know people like to keep them as keepsakes and as souvenirs. But what we've done with the Nationals in this virtual ticketing is, if you and and a lot of times in baseball it's an eighty-two game home season, you buy your season tickets with three or four of your buddies and and. If you've got paper tickets, you meet at the beginning of the season. You hand out those tickets. Uh, to, you divide those tickets between those four, and then you'll then you'll divvy yours up some more. But the team only has the information on the person that's those those season ticket holders. With this virtual ticketing, what happens is that process of sharing tickets, which happens a lot in baseball, you do that all online, and all of a sudden, I've got the I've got information about each of those different ticket holders, each of those people that you've shared those tickets with. So the, the database for marketing purposes 
for the Nationals increased from a, I think, a season holder fan base of about 15,000 to over 100,000 now in a, in, a, in a database. So it's been incredible. So it's, it's really smart technology advances like that, that, that teams, there's instances where teams are adopting those around. But, but yes, you're right. I think sports in general is kind of somewhat slow to do that. Let's do a, a deeper dive on 4040, you know, the day to day, what your role is there as far as creative director, how much execution you're getting to do, how many people work there and that type of thing. Why don't you kind of kind of touch on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I run the business now and, and have taken over the business. So it's, uh, it's it's one principle. And so a lot of my day is in the business of running the business and getting the name out there, getting the 4040 name out there and um, trying to find the next big project. And then I am also the face of the, um, for the different clients that we have. We've got a crew of designers here. I'm trying to think because we, we've got a couple part-timers. So we've got some small staff right now. We've got about, with the, with the part-timers, about five. You know, just the, on the day-to-day is a lot of the nationals work that, that we do. We're on a, ongoing relationship with them so there's always that work going on and then the various project works that go through so i think on a day-to-day basis i'll come in kind of give assignments check in with the designers periodically throughout the day and then and then work on to the work around in the business when i'll get involved initially on a big project or a big assignment and and help lead the direction I'm a big believer in having ideas come from the ground up, and and my job, I think, as a creative director is is really making those ideas relevant, better, aligned with the strategy that we create. I don't, I'm not the kind of creative director that will sit over a designer and tell them to, you know, push the pixels that way or move the pixels the other way kind of thing. I, I want them to have ownership in it, uh, create it, and then I'll steer them in the direction to make sure that that it's meaningful, it's relevant, it's all the things that, that reflect the brand that we're building. Well, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, if you have any advice regarding, we talk about you going sort of full throttle into the sports niche. People that listen to the show, there are some, be- there are a lot of sort of higher level people that listen, but there also are some beginners. What, uh, do you have any advice for people that are wanting to kind of dive in head first and really just work in this, in this industry? Yeah. Uh, I helped teach a class up at University of San Francisco in the Graduate School of Sports Marketing, and, and they ask that question all the time, and, and these are more on the business side of the sports, and, and it's a tough business to enter into, and those those kids are, are you know looking to work in a front office and a team or something or other, and there's a lot, a lot of people that want to do that and not a whole lot of, not a whole lot of openings, and so I tell that class, and these are all business, mostly business MBA kind of types, I tell that class, if you want to work at sports, get a design degree because <laughs> there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot more opportunity. I think our I found so that's the good news for the designers out there because there's a lot of different avenues into sports as opposed to the traditional ones, which is working for a team or a league. And because there's a lot of there's agencies, not a lot, but there's agencies like mine and like some of the other guys that you've had on your podcast that are pretty heavy in sports and that that are doing some really, really good work in the sports area. And so that's a good way to do it. And then there's also, and certainly on the brand side of that, you know, my, my experience and then, and others working at, at the, you know, starting, starting a career at a Nike or an Under Armour or any of the, any of the consumer product brands that are in the, 
in the sports and fitness space. There's tons of opportunities there, and that's a terrific way to get into it. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there, and I think that for designers, for designers, for people that understand technology that can work digitally, I think there's a there's opportunities out there that you just got to uncover or create them or make them yourself. I agree. That's good advice. Why, where can our listeners get in touch with you and find out more if they want to reach out? Uh, Twitter is at John, J-O-H-N, 4040. That's my Twitter handle. Um, I try to do that a, a bit. The website, my agency website is 4040agency.com, 4040agency.com. You can see all our work on there. And then my email address. Should I get my email address, Adam? If you want to. <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> Why don't we just leave it at Twitter? Okay. <laughs> we'll leave it at Twitter. Reach me through Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, John, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're a busy oh, this guy. Is, this was fun, Adam. I enjoyed doing it. And, and good luck with your uh, continued success with this thing. It's a, it's a good thing you're doing. Thanks a lot. My next guest is designer and illustrator Matt Stevens. Matt works with many brands outside of sports, such as Pinterest, Facebook, and more. However, he is probably most known for his book that he raised successfully raised uh, funding for on Kickstarter called The Air Max 100. And what that is is a, is a book of 100 Air Max 1 sneaker illustrations, which is his favorite sneaker. I'm, I'm a bit of a sneakerhead myself, so that's sort of how I discovered that. But not only did he raise the money through Kickstarter, it actually helped to kickstart his career at, as an independent. We'll be talking about personal projects and how it's never really too late to, to do your own thing. Uh, he began his full-time freelance career uh, in his early 40s, and we just heard from John today that he's, him and his partner started their business in their 40s. Uh, so you can check out his work, hello, mattstevens.com. Big thanks again to John Trotter for taking the time to join the show. Again, be sure to follow him on Twitter, at John4040. That's 4040. Also coming soon, I've announced it before halftime, uh, the 20-minute solo podcast between the weeks of interviews where I will be discussing freelance professionalism and more in the world uh, of sports uh, in this particular vertical. I'm working on getting some episodes in the queue so that I'm not uh, working my tail off <laughs> over here every day between client work. Uh, hoping to launch that in the new year. Be sure to follow myself on Twitter at T Adam Martin as well as the show at Makers of Sport. Please take time to rate, like, or write a review of the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whichever application you happen to be listening to. You can also leave a comment at the website, makersofsport.com, and, and also uh, comment on this episode uh, at this episode's page, makersofsport.com. Until next time, hope everyone has a good week.